yeah, what, what the layperson calls dust, we also call dust, yeah. You're listening to The Cosmic Cast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Cosmic Cast brought to you by the Earth and Solar System team at the University of Manchester. As per usual this week I'm joined by regular co-hosts of Marissa Lowe, Ricky Bahir and Tom Harvey. And this week based at the Natural History Museum in London is Martin Suttle. How's it going? Hello, uh, it's going really well thank you. I'm uh, making the most of the lockdown by working uh, hard at home and uh, enjoying the, uh, the sunshine from indoors. Well, yes. <laughs> How are you finding working from home? Uh, well, the way the kind of uh, work I have is, uh, there's very few days of data collection produce lots of data, which uh, result in lots of time sitting behind a computer processing and writing up that data. So kind of the ratio of in the lab to behind a computer is such that the lockdown is quite, uh, for now, is quite okay in terms of I have lots to be getting on with. Yeah, well, that's good. So how would you describe yourself then? Would you describe yourself as a geochemist or an experimental? Um, I would describe myself as a planetary scientist, I guess, which is quite a broad term for uh, studying extraterrestrial materials. Um, but I come at, come at my field uh, as a petrologist, I guess. So I, I look at rocks um, under the SEM and X-ray diffraction and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, microanalysis. I like looking at rocks under microscopes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, pragmatically uh, what I do. So did you come uh, to planetary science from a geology background then or from a different subject area? Exactly, yeah. So I, I came to... Uh, where I am now initially through geology. So I, I did a four-year undergraduate geology course um, at Imperial College London uh, and that was termed an MSci degree which is a three-year bachelor's and then a one-year independent research master's uh, tagged on the end and it forms a single degree. Um, and so I, I did that and initially when I started out I was really interested in, in all of geology so I, I took a broad degree uh, but within that I thought I would uh, go on to specialise in paleontology. I was really interested in uh, life and fossils, and in particular, uh, the creepy crawly kind of fossils from the Cambrian. Uh, so like all these marine animals. All the weird looking ones. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So uh, I, was, I was super interested in that to begin with, um, and read lots around that subject. And actually the book that got me interested in, uh, or convinced me to choose geology for a degree, there's a book called Wonderful Life by Stephen Jay Gould, which is about the Cambrian explosion and these unusual fossils that are uh, found in these Canadian rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I uh, came to the end of my degree and I had to choose an independent research master's project, uh, I ended up choosing a project on micrometeorites to do something different. Um, because at that time, by that time, I'd already done a, a year abroad at Utrecht, the Netherlands. Uh, and specialised on climatology and uh, paleontology while I was there. So I sort of had my fill of that. So I wanted to get into a different area. Anyway, so during my independent masters, I did a project on micrometeorites, uh, which are, uh, which is what I ended up studying for then many years thereafter. Uh, and micrometeorites are, are small grains of dust. Um, so they're dust in space, and then they spiral inwards and get captured by Earth's gravity. So when we say small, are we talking microns? 
We're talking anywhere between bigger than 20 microns all the way up to about three millimeters. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, what, what the layperson calls dust, we also call dust, yeah. <laughs> same, size, same size range. Um, yeah, so I, I was interested in looking at some of that because that was a project that my supervisor at the time, uh, Matt Genge, Dr. Matt Genge at Imperial, uh, offered. And essentially he had a vial of, of dust from a single mountain in the Antarctic called Larkman Nunatak. And uh, a lot of the project was picking out um, cosmic dust among all this terrestrial sediment and then putting it under the microscope and trying to work out something about where it came from. Mm-hmm. That sounds quite challenging doing that picking. Yeah, okay. So uh, the learning how to pick micrometeorites is actually not that tough when you have the right sediment. Um, so uh, in order to find micrometeorites, everything we do is um, trying to increase the relative abundance of cosmic dust with respect to the terrestrial sediment. And so this is why we were looking at Antarctic sediments rather than anywhere else. So although uh, cosmic dust falls to Earth, uh, all over the Earth, everywhere, um, at a rate of approximately 40,000 tonnes a year, mm-hmm. so there's loads of it, um, it gets diluted, as it were, and hidden among all the other terrestrial dusts. So to find micrometeorites on Earth, we want to look in places where there's very low sedimentation rates of Earth's own sediment. Mm-hmm. And in practice, that can be either um, ice and snow deposits in the Antarctic or in Greenland, or deep sea deposits uh, on the seafloor very far away from continents where there's no or very limited influx of sediment from rivers. Mm-hmm. Now we can collect micrometeorites from both of those places and then uh, some of the earliest micrometeorites ever recovered were from deep sea deposits in the 1870s by the HMS Challenger expedition. But it turns out that sitting on the sea floor for uh, thousands and thousands of years as uh, before those sediments converted into rock uh, results in a lot of the material being dissolved and corroded uh, and lost uh, by the acidic action of, this, of the oceans. Um, and so instead, Antarctic sediments, which produce much younger or, or potentially younger micrometeorites um, that haven't had that much interaction with liquid water, is, is, a, better, is a better way to uh, find more particles that are better preserved. So um, if you have this vial of dust, um, how do you then go through it and identify these micrometeorites and how do you remove them from the rest of the dust? So uh, the first thing you need to do, which is going to sound odd, is that you clean the dust. So uh, the dust is actually uh, got other dust on it, as it were. Um, And what I mean by that is, so there are grains of silicate rock, um, which are cemented together with salts. Um, And so a lot of these salts are uh, sodium chloride salt, uh, table salt that comes from the ocean uh, that's blown up into the uh, atmosphere in Antarctica and deposited but also sulfate and sulfide salts. So um, these are sodium um, and sulfur-rich compounds. Uh, and they, both of those dissolve in water, and that helps us liberate the grains. So instead of being aggregates of lots of grains, they become individual grains. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we wash the sediment in um, either high-purity water or alcohol. Um, and alcohol is potentially a better option because... Um, if it's 100% ethanol, then you're not actually produ- forcing the potential micrometeorites in contact with liquid water, mm-hmm. which is one of these things that we want to avoid if we're going to then go on and study water on 
asteroids in space um, and the interaction of silicates and, and water. Uh, so we wash the sediment and that, that helps it uh, separate out into finer grains uh, rather than clusters. And then we sieve, once that sediment is then dry, we sieve that sediment because we know that micrometeorites have a kind of specific size distribution that peaks around uh, 200 microns. So that's where most of your particles are going to be. Mm -hmm. Is that just to do with how these things enter the atmosphere, I guess? Potentially, yeah, but also to do with the size distribution of, of the, the material that's producing that dust. So those okay. asteroids and comets, which is where micrometeorites come from, um, are going to produce dust with a distinct size distribution. Right. Uh, it looks like the majority of the source bodies produce a peak around 200 microns, uh, which is quite fine. And, and so that leads us to believe that's one of the lines of evidence that makes us think that a lot of these micrometeorites are coming from uh, fragile, hydrated material mm -hmm. that's quite weak. Okay, so. that's interesting. So, uh, does, does, that, does that imply then that um, the, the sort of what you're getting out of these micrometeorites then um, are not really represented by the larger hands or pan-sized fragments of meteorites that, that we more commonly associate with studying? I guess. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question because uh, this is actually one of the fundamental areas of research in uh, for micrometeorites is trying to work out where they come from. Uh, and this is what I spend a lot of my time doing. We can approach this question from uh, a many different uh, kind of geochemical isotopic mm. uh, solutions. But uh, yeah, so it, it sort of suggests that although uh, lots of the material we find among the micrometeorite flux is represented by meteorites, the two populations are not the same. So mm -hmm. that's something, uh, some of the same material, but definitely other stuff which we don't find in the meteorite record. And the most obvious of the, among those is cometary material. Mm -hmm. So although we're very confident that the meteorites we have on Earth and we find in Antarctica and we see full uh, come predominantly from asteroids, uh, we don't think that any of the meteorites uh, come from comets. Whereas in contrast, uh, some fraction of micrometeorites appear to come from comets. Yeah, that's really cool big uh, arguments in our field is, is the ratio of how much is asteroidal and how much is cometary. And is this mostly based off um, oxygen isotope analyses? Uh, so it, it's, it's kind of a diff the different uh, way you approach the problem, you come to different solutions. So astronomers and numerical modelers that look at the dust bands in space that are spiraling inwards to, to feed the material that comes to Earth, uh, seem to suggest that the majority of that is cometary. So, um, yeah, from a, from a big picture astronomical perspective, it looks like it's dominated by comets. Mm -hmm. But then from the mineralogical perspective, from people like me who look at the micrometeorites that we find at the Earth's surface, they look more like what we expect uh, of, of asteroids. Okay. So this problem is, is our boundaries and distinctions and whether asteroids and comets represent a spectrum of material. Mm, yeah. Uh, and part of that is also probably the atmosphere, Earth's own atmosphere, biasing the flux mm -hmm. referentially towards asteroidal material. Mm. And the uh, the reason that would be the case is because um, the probability of survival as a particle comes in through the Earth's atmosphere is, is very largely dependent upon its speed. And cometary material will come in at much higher speeds and therefore burn up, is much more likely to burn up uh, than asteroidal material. Yeah. So it we'll, could, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, it could be a, um, largely an effect of just Earth's atmosphere. 
Yeah. Does water content make a difference too? Because I suppose if you've got something that's got a high water content coming through the atmosphere, does that flux it and help it burn away in the in the atmosphere? I suppose. That, that's absolutely right. Um, I, so material that's rich in water is actually much more likely to survive through the Earth's atmosphere than anhydrous, than dry materials. Um, and the reason is that that water, so water is a, is a very um, efficient absorber of heat. It has a very high heat capacity. Uh, and so that means you need to put in a lot of heat energy in order to heat the particle up. Um, so compared to something that's dry, you need uh, more heat energy to reach the same temperature. And as a result, that helps them survive. Uh, effectively, by boiling off that water, um, they are able to maintain lower peak temperatures. So, so you, you get I feel like we're about to ask the same question. Yeah, you go for it. <laughs> I was going to ask, yeah, so once you've, once you've separated out your micrometeorites from your other dust, um, what techniques are you using to study them? And how much does the tiny size of these micrometeorites affect your analysis? So the size is, is really critical and uh, it's one of the big drawbacks, of course, because the smaller a particle is, the less you can do with it. With a larger meteorite sample, we can break a piece off and we can send that piece for some destructive studies and we can break off another piece and, and uh, set that up in a polished block and put that in the SEM, et cetera, et cetera. With a micrometeorite, you obviously have a very limited amount of material. And so uh, you have to be very careful about how you're going to uh, treat that and what techniques you're going to use. Pragmatically, the vast majority of um, micrometeorite researchers embed the particles in a resin uh, and then section the particles so that we can see in uh, the interiors of these materials. And then we put them on the SEM, uh, under the SEM. So that's a scanning electron microscope. And that allows us to see the textures and the mineralogy and the chemistry of the particles in a largely non-destructive way. Um, and from there, we might then sub-select a series of particles which are more interesting than the rest for, for whatever reason, and then potentially direct those towards a more destructive type of analysis, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, nanosims or um, ion probe or something mm -hmm. else. And if part of your research is to try and figure out where this material originated from, if you're looking at a sample, so say you've got this vial and you've separated out all your micrometeorite material, how much of that material has been mixed from other sources? So say, for instance, do you expect that all to come from one body or is it likely that lots of different bodies have mixed their dust as it falls through the atmosphere? So you're actually looking at lots of different sources. We're definitely looking at lots of different sources, which is what makes it uh, a, a, a big problem. And to be clear, we're not trying to say that this individual particle came from that specific asteroid. It's more like we want to say that this particle came from this group or, or family or, or that sort of thing. Uh, so we can, we can look at the mineralogy and the petrology and the oxygen isotope compositions of micrometeorites, and that gives us clues to uh, where these particles are coming from. But in the, in the same uh, vein, we can also look out into space and look at which bodies are producing dust. And that also helps us um, limit the number of potential bodies that these things are coming from. Mm -hmm. so there are two main supplies of dust to Earth. Um, one of them is from comets. So as comets come close to the sun, they heat up and they essentially evaporate or sublimate material. And that releases dust. 
and they produce very distinctive dust streams. Uh, and as those dust streams intersect Earth's orbit, we get meteor showers. And so throughout the year at night, you get these regular meteor showers, the Perseids and the Geminids. Um, and we actually know which bodies they come from. And those are definitely producing sending micrometeorites to Earth. Um, on the other hand, in the asteroid belt, um, over very long timescales, those asteroids collide with each other um, and that causes them to break apart in these very big catastrophic collisions. And that generates loads and loads and loads of dust. Um, and likewise, that dust uh, spirals inwards and is captured uh, by the Earth. So in terms of asteroids producing dust, there are three specific families that we think are very strong candidates for supplying micrometeorites to Earth today. Um, and of those, two are what we call C-type asteroids. So that, that, that designation is based on the spectral class of the asteroid. Uh, and they're associated with carbonaceous chondrites, so primitive, potentially hydrated, uh, maybe outer solar system material. Whereas one of those groups is an S-type asteroid family, which is called the Coronis asteroid family. And that's probably associated with ordinary chondrites, which are more anhydrous, coarser grained, inner solar system material. Uh, so in answer to your question, we're definitely getting material from many different sources and it's all mixed in over time, but uh, there's probably a few dominant sources. Um, so, probably, go on, I was, I was, so what I was going to ask is, relating to kind of ordinary chondrites and carbonaceous chondrites, people might have seen, you know, thin section photos or backscatter electron images. When it comes to looking at kind of micrometeorite material, how recognizable is it when kind of pe petrologically, mineralogically, when compared to larger samples of the same material? So uh, this process of the particles coming in through the Earth's atmosphere is, is uh, really important and it changes the micrometeorites significantly. Uh, this is because those particles are heated up to maybe uh, up to 2000 degrees and cool back down again in a space of uh, usually less than 10 seconds. Uh, and that means that a lot of the particles melt. When they melt, they pull themselves into little droplet shapes, uh, and we call them cosmic spherules. And the vast majority of the micrometeorites are, um, that we find are these cosmic spherules, maybe 90% of them. And because they've melted, we no longer have the textures or even the original minerals of, uh, that they had on their parent asteroid or comet. Um, but they do preserve the geochemical signatures, so the same chemistry, and they do preserve the oxygen isotopes of their parent bodies. And in some of those melted particles, they're not 100% melted, so there are relic grains. Um, I mostly study the unmelted fraction, so those particles lucky enough to come in through the Earth's atmosphere at speeds and angles low enough that allow them to survive unmelted. Um, and even if they are unmelted, they're probably still heated to some degree, maybe six, 700 degrees. Um, and that might change the organics uh, inside those particles but it will leave the mineralogy the same. And it's in those particles that we can then look at and say something about the textures and mineralogy of the parent bodies. But in answer to your question, how do we know that an unmelted micrometeorite is a grain of something else, uh, you know, extraterrestrial? Um, one of the real key pieces of information to, uh, to let us know that it's extraterrestrial is this thin rim that they develop on the outside of the particle which we call a igneous and a magnetite rim. So it's like a, a paired, there's an outer layer of magnetite and then within that, an inner layer of glassy silicate. And those features um, 
formed by surface melting. So even if the whole particle doesn't melt, a very thin layer of surface melt forms. Um, and that's critical to, to, for us to be able to say that this particle is dust in space rather than just a meteorite that fragmented at the Earth's surface. So it would also be good to ask you about the work you do on bigger meteorites, normal meteorites. I don't know what you call them. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe macro meteorites. Yeah, uh, as part of your postdoc project. Um, so I guess you're kind of looking at the same sort of problem, looking at asteroids, but using different samples to study them. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, in a way, looking at meteorites can be a bit easier because, as we said, there's a lot more material to play with um, and they're less affected by atmospheric entry. So uh, a meteorite might explode in the atmosphere and, and develop a fusion crust. But there are large sections of the meteorite that are even just visible by eye have clearly not been heated during atmospheric entry. And that means we can rule out those processes immediately. Um, so what I'm looking at is a class of hydrated meteorites, uh, hydrated carbonaceous chondrites. Um, and these are the CO, sorry, the CMs and the CYs. Um, and those are closely related to the COs, which are a dry group. So what I'm trying to do, the main project I have at the moment, is taking this dry group of CO chondrites, adding some water and trying to reproduce the textures, the minerals, and even the oxygen isotope composition of those hydrated groups. So in practice, what that means we do is we, we take a, a CO that is very well characterized that lots of people have studied before. In, in my case, a meteorite called Keynesance that fell in Russia, um, I think a very long time ago. Um, and then smash it up into small chips, uh, put those chips in little reaction vessels with certain variable amounts of water. So one of the main things that I'm interested in testing is how the amount of water uh, controls the aqueous alteration, the, the alteration of these bodies. So um, what we, we, we summarize that as what we call the water to rock ratio. Um, and that might vary anywhere between 0.2, which is very little water, all the way up to potentially one, which is you know, equal volumes of water to rock. Um, and so, you know, we've got lots of different reaction vessels, essentially, with the same amount of meteorite, but different amounts of water in. And we seal those vessels and we put them in an oven and heat them up to temperatures that we think, based on other people's work, other people's research, are uh, probably the temperatures that we're operating on those asteroids. And those are, uh, for me, the temperatures I'm exploring are 50 degrees and 150 degrees. Um, and then we alter them for a very long time, maybe somewhere like 90 days. Um, we open up those reaction vessels and uh, look at the products, mm -hmm. trying to see how, how those variables that we've been playing with affect the end product. Um, and at the moment, uh, during the lockdown, this is uh, where I'm at. All these, all these reaction vessels are in long-term, high-temperature ovens, um, and they're hopefully reacting away while we... Mm, that's really cool. Tell the pandemic at home. How do we determine how long-term is long enough for that sort of process to happen? Yeah, this is a real tough question because um, it could be... Uh, days, it could be years, it could be thousands of years, the, the, the duration of alteration on these asteroids. And obviously, we can't reproduce those longer ends of that alteration timescale. So um, we don't really know what to expect when we uh, open these up in terms of how much alteration has occurred. But mainly, I'm interested in 
the style rather than the amount of alteration. So mm -hmm. even if there's been a very small amount of alteration, it's uh, the types of minerals that are being produced mm -hmm. and types of oxygen isotope signatures we're seeing in the altered rock that I'm interested in. It would, it would of course be great to reproduce them exactly, but uh, my hunch is that, that we won't be able to do that. But one way that we can also speed up artificially, um, make the reactions happen faster and therefore simulate longer alteration timescales is by powdering the rock. So when we produce larger surface area, we um, can increase the speed of reactions. So you're effectively sort of recreating hydrothermal systems potentially that might be occurring on the CO parent body. Is, is that basically what you're doing? On the CM parent body. CM, but yeah, sorry. Absolutely. This is, this, is, this is exactly the kind of idea behind the project is to uh, simulate those conditions that we think operated on asteroids in the early solar system. Um, and so this is really some of the first geology that was happening in the solar yeah. system. And what I mean by that is kind of chemical reactions on rocky bodies. Uh, and we think that a lot of these rocky bodies would then go on to be the building blocks of planets. So uh, there might have been 100 or so 100 kilometer diameter planetesimals um, and these bodies ultimately impacted each other to form the later planets that we see Venus, Earth, Mars. Um, and so we're interested in, in a, yeah, that, that kind of early geology in the, on those systems. Um, and specifically, my project is interested in the conditions. So uh, what kind of conditions we're operating. That's so cool. Oh, so are your experiments still ongoing now? They are, yes. Yeah. So the initial plan was to, to we, we were very ambitious because we wanted to uh, explore the constraints of temperature. So we wanted to do 50, 100 and 150 degrees, the amount of the water to rock ratio, so the amount of water, and we were going to do 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, 0 0.8 and 1, so different ratios. Um, and also the oxygen isotopes, so the composition, the isotopic composition of that water. And so we've got water with different uh, dopings, so different amounts of heavy oxygen in it. So there's lots and lots of variables that we're playing with, uh, but we probably won't be able to uh, explore all of those in the same way as we initially hoped, because uh, the experiments are now going on for much longer. So the idea was to, you have a limited number of ovens and reaction vessels, you run one batch, then you run a second batch, then you run a third batch. Uh, we'll probably run fewer batches, uh, explore fewer variables, but by running them for longer, we hope to see more uh, or, or, or for those changes, those uh, effects to be more obvious. Mm. Um, and so that's, uh, that's the position we're at now. Yeah, that's cool. Do you think, um, would you expect pressure to have much of an effect on this as well? Or um... Potentially, yeah. So the, the pressure on, on, on these parent bodies, especially as they get larger and larger, is not, is not insignificant. Um, and pressure does affect all of these reactions. Uh, on, on a very simple basis, higher pressures can promote faster reactions, but they can also stabilize uh, minerals which are otherwise unstable at lower pressures. Mm -hmm. um, that said, we don't expect the pressures on, on these asteroids to be uh, extreme, similar to, say, the deep earth pressures, uh, yeah. things like subduction zones. Uh, compared to that, they're very low pressure. Uh, so that's one of the variables that I've decided to uh, avoid it, controlling. 
Keeps um, life simpler in the lab too, I guess. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But because we know the volume of the reaction vessels and we know the temperature, you can use a simple kind of ideal gas law equation yeah. to work out the pressure those reactions operated under. Um, so you also mentioned CY meteorites in that uh, before. Um, so we were speaking to Ashley King about that because I believe he had a paper on that recently. Uh, would you mind talking through where that comes into the project and maybe a bit of background on them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, while these experiments run, they take, uh, in, in terms of you know, academia and research life, they take a long time to run. And so you want to have something else to be uh, playing around with and exploring. And so one of the other water-rich groups of carbonaceous chondrites that I'm looking at are the CYs. Uh, and these are kind of like a new group that um, was originally proposed by the Japanese um, research teams in the 1990s. Um, and that kind of argued that they should be considered a new carbonaceous chondrite group, the ninth carbonaceous chondrite group. Um, and then they were kind of like largely forgotten about. And then last year, um, our team at the Natural History Museum, um, mainly driven by uh, Ashley King, did lots of new research on the CYs and came to the same conclusions that they deserve their own uh, classification as, as a distinct group. Um, and so although they look superficially very similar to CM and CI carbonaceous chondrites, so they're, they're hydrated um, and then they've been thermally metamorphosed, um, and they have very similar minerals and textures. One of the very distinct differences is that they have uh, significantly higher sulfide um, abundances. So the sulfide contents in the CYs reach up to 30 volume percent uh, and go down to low, as low as maybe 19. So that's um, much, much higher, up to 40 times higher than the concentrations we find in CI chondrites. And that's a really unusual feature. And one of the other distinct features of the CYs is that oxygen isotope composition is much heavier than all other known groups. Um, and this was known even uh, in the 1990s, but uh, it was uncertain whether their heavier compositions were a product simply of the thermal metamorphism that they'd experienced. So um, one way you can get heavy oxygen isotopes is by having lots of this heavy uh, primitive outer solar system water present in the body. But another way you can generate heavy isotopes is through metamorphism, kind of boiling off the lighter isotopes and allowing them to escape um, the parent body uh, as, a, as a steam or a gas or something like that. Um, and so it wasn't clear uh, initially uh, sort of how they had got that heavy isotope group and whether that was an artifact of that formation or a later alteration process on the parent body. Um, the CYs have a whole bunch of other unique exotic minerals, what we call might call accessory phases. So they're present in low abundances, but they're unusual because we don't see them in other groups. Uh, and the most interesting of these is, is a phase called periclase, which is actually a really simple mineral. It's a magnesium oxide or iron oxide. So some mixture of the two, it's kind of like a solid solution. Um, and we think that that probably formed from the decomposition of carbonates, uh, the thermal decomposition of carbonates during metamorphism. Uh, but in the CYs, these periclases are very big, well-developed euhedral crystals that are kind of maybe lozenge-shaped, like a, um, a flanned circle. 
um, or big cubic kind of square shaped uh, grains. Uh, and so certainly that formation, uh, how, how they formed is, is uncertain, but we have some ideas that they might be related to metamorphism. Mm, that's cool. uh, so the CYs look like they're their own group in their own right, they have unique characteristics. Um, and there's a small number of them at the moment, maybe nine, uh, and they appear to come from only two different places uh, on Earth. That we mm. can. So the Yamtro Mountains in East Antarctica and the Dofar region, which is a desert in Oman. And have people been quite accepting of this new group or have there still been a few diehards out there that refuse to accept that this is the case? I'm not really sure because it takes a time, it takes time from when a paper comes out till you see the responses to that paper. Uh, so the paper came out sort of uh, midway through 2019. Mm. Uh, and I'd, I'd say that it's been fairly well uh, cited, implying that, you know, people uh, sort of broadly agree with it. Um, and uh, from, what should we say, um, anecdotal feedback, uh, hearing other people, I think mostly, yeah. But it is not, the, the group, the CYs are not officially recognized by the uh, meteoritical bulletin and, mm -hmm. and the classification, the nomenclature of our, of our community yet. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure exactly how that process evolves uh, to, to result in a, this is a, you know, a widely recognized new meteorite group. Yeah. But, uh, it's yeah. pretty cool nonetheless, though. Well, we'll put a link to some of those papers in the episode description if anyone wants to read a bit more about them. Cool. Thank you. That is most of uh, everything I'm, I'm, I'm doing at the moment. I, uh, completely unrelated to everything else, I'm also interested in looking at comets. Um, and so when I was in Pisa, the end of my time in Pisa, I started uh, working on a project uh, looking at whether comets can be aqueously altered as they pass close to the sun. Um, so this is an idea that's been thrown around uh, for, a, uh, for a while in the community by a few people and is um, largely sort of uh, ignored, I think. Um, in favor of if there is any aqueous alteration on comets that occurring in the early solar system and the heat for that alteration being generated by radioactive decay. Uh, so the reason I came to be interested in, wh in whether this process is important is because uh, of, of trying to reconcile that uh, problem of whether micrometeorites come from comets or asteroids. Well, if the astronomers and the people who look out into space say that most of this is coming from comets, and yet the particles we look at look like asteroids. Maybe comets and asteroids are more similar than we initially think. And that would require that comets have had interaction with liquid water. Um, and so if, if they weren't altered in the early solar system, maybe they were altered very recently. Um, and increasingly, um, we have material in, among micrometeorite collections, which we're fairly certain comes from comets. It has lots of unique features like high deuterium, uh, abundances, deuterium excess, these primitive phases which we call gems, uh, which are like amorphous silicate, um, and high organic contents. So these are all uh, features we associate with comets. And yet we see small quantities of phyllosilicate present on these bodies. Um, and that suggests they've had very, uh, so phyllosilicates are clays, hydrated minerals. And, and that formation requires that the silicate rock has had interaction with liquid water. Mm. Um, and so when we look at the population of comets, uh, I, alluded, I, I said before that a lot of those comets are, are supplying material to Earth in the form of meteor showers. 
And so we may well expect some of those comets to be hydrated material rather than the, the pristine anhydrous material that they're made out to be. Mm. And so what I, what I uh, looked at in that study was that some of these comets come very close to the sun. Um, they can get heated up to uh, much higher than I expected at least, or maybe even 150 degrees on the surface of the bodies. Um, and we know that they outgas, um, sublimate and lose water. And so if they can, uh, if that heating generates gas faster than they can lose it, you might be able to generate uh, subsurface pressure in some of these comets. And then that pressure can stabilize liquid water and allow aqueous alteration reactions to happen in the subsurface of comets over very short timescales, maybe you know, 12 hours, mm. uh, just before that dust is released. And that might explain the observations of some hydrated uh, cometary micrometeorites. Do the phyllosilicates take a very short amount of time to form? Or would the liquid water need to be stable for a reasonable amount of time on the comet? Yes, yeah, so we think these reactions can happen in less than 24 hours. Oh, at wow. That's really around rapid. 20 degrees. And the reason is because the material, the silicates in the comets are not crystalline, they're amorphous. Right. Uh, so they don't really have any bonds to, to break, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in order to initiate chemical reactions, you usually have to break bonds and then form new ones. Well, in amorphous materials, there's, there's no bonds to break. Uh, so there's very low uh, enthalpy, low energy required to generate these reactions. Mm -hmm. And so there have been some really interesting experiments um, kind of in the early 2000s, uh, experimentally aqueously altering cometary micrometeorites and showing that they alter extremely quickly. Uh, and this is uh, another piece of evidence that suggests that it would be possible for comets to be hydrated uh, fairly rapidly. Uh, again, we're talking about a small amount of hydration, um, not you know, loads and loads of phyllosilicates, but... Uh, uh, some some amount, uh, perhaps you know, maybe five percent. Yeah, that's really cool. I guess does that have implications for how different different isotope systems fractionate as well? Maybe I. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure. I haven't, uh, <laughs> thought about it from that aspect. So uh, that that paper is uh, under review in Icarus, and um, it, it went down quite well at the, at the first stage of review. And so I'm hoping to hear back soon about that. And uh, fingers crossed, it might be uh, uh, online in a few months. Cool. <laughs> Brilliant. Amazing. Well, is it possibly time for our final question? I think it might be. <laughs> um, so a question that we ask all of our guests is that if you could be doing something else completely different, either in academia or outside of it, what would you want to do? Hmm. Okay. So if I could be doing a completely different job, um, I mean, I, I mean, I quite like my job, and it's it's really interesting. Um, if I was going to uh, research a different area and something completely different, I I, I suggested that my passion before was paleontology, and I mm. still am very interested in that. So I think it would be really cool to explore, you know, uh, looking at fossils and, and something to do with uh, early life. Um, alternatively, if I'm barred from doing anything academic, um, I'd quite like to uh, maybe have a go at running a brewery. Oh, well, that would be quite good, yes. <laughs> Playing around with the, the chemistry of, you know, hops and yeast and uh, that sort of thing and exploring different, yeah. Because you get to use your scientific side 
uh, as and, and blend it with some creativity. Um, and uh, it's on the face of it, it's quite simple chemistry that everyone that we've been doing for literally hundreds of years. Um, but the the explosion in all these different types of beers and these different techniques demonstrate that there's still a lot of um, capacity for innovation. So yeah, I think that'd wow. be interesting too. We've Very noble pursuit, I think. We've spoken to this many geologists, and I think that's the first time anyone's suggested brewing, <laughs> which is a bit of a surprise now that I think about it. Well, uh, my uh, parents homebrew uh, wine, um, and so I've had a, I, I uh, got into into that as a hobby um, about ten years ago now, I guess. And uh, so I, I've been making uh, wines, you know, homebrew wines from blackberries and, and raspberries and things like mm-hmm. that uh, for a while, just for interest. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, get hit and misses, but uh, it's uh, it's good fun. Yeah, that's brilliant. Good self-sufficient hobby for lockdown as well. Absolutely. Making exactly, yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> it's uh, the right time for elderflower, so we're going to um, go out and pick some. And Actually, we're, we're going to make some cordial, so non-alcoholic, but uh, that's uh, a plan for the coming weekend. Sounds like pretty good, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Martin, thank you very much for joining us. Um, that was, uh, yeah, a great, great conversation. Uh, so for inviting me. Oh, absolute pleasure. So yeah, once again, we'll just put a few of those papers that you mentioned in the episode description if uh, any of our viewers or listeners want to read a bit more about the subject. Um, but in the meantime, thank you once again. And for all our listeners and viewers, if you want uh, some more Earth and Planetary Science content, do check us out everywhere on the social medias from Twitters and Facebooks and Instagrams. We're at Earth Solar System. Um, but until next week, Have a lovely time and we'll see you all very soon. Goodbye.